You're listening to the Replatform podcast and the dulcet tones of me, James Gerd, and my co-host Paul Rogers. How are you today, mate? Yeah, good. Thanks. How are you doing? Yeah, all good. Ready for another episode. So hello to our regular listeners and welcome if you're joining us for the first time. A world of e-commerce wonder awaits you. Do subscribe to get new episode alerts and uh, we'd love a like on YouTube, Spotify, Apple to give us a warm glow of satisfaction on a cold winter's day. So I'm going to introduce our topic and then we'll say hello to our guest today. So our topic is broadly what e-commerce teams need to know about site performance and speed optimization for WordPress. So WordPress is a massive community, huge install base, I think some of the stats are already seeing over 409 million people view more than 20 billion pages each month. So very small numbers, basically. Uh, it's used on content sites like TechCrunch, commerce sites like the Bjork Official Store, which is my 90s indies reference. Um, but at the same time, being open source, it presents challenges. Um, you know, it's not a, a SaaS standardized product. Therefore, depending on how people influence it, these sites can perform really well, or you can have issues. And I know from personal failure on my own site, uh, poor governance around things like plugins can kill your see, core web vital scores. So today we're talking to a leading voice in the WordPress community, marketing technologist, whose favorite things apparently are web development, futurology, WordPress, science fiction, and gin which is interesting. So welcome to the podcast, Jenna Alderson. How are you, sir? I'm very good. Thanks for having me. Um, excellent use of the word dulcet, though. I enjoyed that. I don't think anyone's ever described me as dulcet. So, um, yeah, good work. <laughs> excellent. Well, hopefully by the end of the episode, that, that will still hold true. Um, <laughs> I also like the fact that gin is listed alongside all of your more technical interests. So I feel like we should have got some gin in for today. It's never too early. It's very hard to decouple those things, I think. Like a, a late night fighting with some PHP is one of the necessary um, pieces of equipment. I love how you've decoupled into the uh, podcast already. We've got our first technical slogan in. Brilliant. Um, nice. So what we're going to try and cover today is like how to improve WordPress site performance, common issues, how to fix them, and where WordPress is heading as a platform. So that, that's our kind of setup. So before we start asking you our usual annoying questions, do you want to give the audience, for those who, who haven't heard of you or haven't worked with you before, who are you? What do you do? Certainly. I wish I knew the answer. Um, so I'm I'm Jono. Um, I work for a company called Yoast, who hopefully many of our um, listeners and viewers have heard for. Um, we're best known for our WordPress SEO plugin, which runs on something like 11 million websites, which is mind-boggling. Um, but we do a whole bunch of open source stuff. We do a whole bunch of other things. And I ostensibly juggle bits of research and development, products, idea scoping, um, and all the bits of everyone else's jobs that don't really fit into the normal day-to-day, -day, like speaking at conferences, and doing our own SEO and thinking about this sort of stuff. Um, alongside that, yeah, I'm a WordPress nerd, a web performance nerd, um, a technical SEO, um, an analytics geek, and a whole bunch of other stuff. And this intersect of WordPress and performance and tech and speed and e-commerce and how do we grow and make money is the most exciting thing happening in the web at the moment. Lovely. Um, well, I'll ask the first question. Um, so one of the big red flags, I guess, that a lot of people associate with WordPress is security um, and hacking and malicious injections, etc. Um, do you think this is fair? Um, how should people avoid it? And how would e-commerce teams specifically minimize these risks? Great question. Um, yeah, there is a reputation issue. Um, and that's because a lot of people set up WordPress sites and they walk away and they don't keep them up to date, they don't take proper precautions, and inevitably some component to them gets hacked or has a vulnerability or somebody gets in through a backdoor. But that's no different than would happen if you built something yourself 
or if you paid a huge amount of money to some kind of enterprise vendor who also ran on 40% of the web. This is a problem of scale and it's a problem of governance, as James pointed out. The fact that it's easy to get set up and that there's a huge marketplace for plugins doesn't mean that you don't need to think about and actively manage security. You still need to assess your setup from the hosting through to WordPress's core stuff, through to your plugins, your own customizations. You need to keep all of that up to date. You need hardening, you need monitoring, you need fallbacks. It's worth spending extra on good hosting where you know that these people are competent so that you don't get caught out by somebody else's mistakes. It's worth having good developers who don't build stuff that's full of holes. And it's worth using trusted popular plugins. But most importantly, you need to keep stuff up to date. And people on WordPress tend not to be the kind of people who are logging in every day and managing their site. And because there's so many of those people who aren't active, yes, those sites get compromised. But in the real world, proper businesses and proper companies managing their sites, sure, not a problem. And um, I'm not as familiar with WordPress as I used to be a few years ago. Like, are there kind of managed service providers that handle a lot of, a lot of this stuff now? Uh, to a degree, some of the hosting vendors do a bit of bundled security stuff. I think SiteGround have quite a nice offering for this. WP Engine are quite good as well. They do a lot of extra kind of service layer on top of WordPress. Most of that space is dominated by a couple of big security plugins like WordFence and Security. Um, and they're really interesting because they employ a whole bunch of people to like actively go out and find vulnerabilities and manage this site. So it's not quite a managed service layer for you, but they are investing resource in solving problems before they hit you. Yeah, I mean, the point you made earlier about a lot of people who build WordPress sites, they build it and leave it. It resonates. You know, I'm an e-commerce consultant, but I'm not a technical consultant like you are. I work with people who always do that bit, and I make sure from a business point of view, it's factored into the project, but I never am responsible for it. Therefore, flip that to my own site. I've had to then go through a learning process of the gaps where, oh, I thought that just happened. And you suddenly realize simple things like you said, not updating the plugin exposes a vulnerability to a particular injection of a particular script, which then gets your, your website blocked or, on uh, on certain spam. And, and it's all these things that you have to learn. And you yep. realize that, yeah, it's the going in with your eyes open to understand what a platform is. is so important. Yeah. 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 The, the, I'm sorry, after you. I can't, Jenna. The spending a bit more is worth it as well, because things like email is quite often a vector. Like if you've set up your own $2 hosting and spun up a WordPress site, you've probably got some awful server email thing baked in, and it takes 10 minutes till that gets hacked. Because, yeah, you're not an expert in DKIM configuration and SPIFs and mailman handshaking. Nobody is. No, nobody really knows how any of that stuff works, I'm sure. Um, except like the hosting companies where you pay an extra $20 a month and you maybe hand it off to an expert. So, yeah, um, a lot of those vulnerabilities are, um, if you try and DIY it on the cheap, there's going to be stuff you don't know. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I think a lot of those principles you talked about earlier apply to Magento, which we talk about a lot as well. Same thing. Like you know, you just need to make sure that you've got yeah the right infrastructure, the right process in place, someone that's like accountable for updates and everything else. Nice. Um, so, in terms of performance, and maybe not performance, um, how big a role does your kind of overall infrastructure and kind of architecture play in making a WordPress site performant? Um, and also like just general kind of good practices around building themes. Um, what are some of the big kind of do's and don'ts um, beyond kind of third-party JavaScript and those kind of impacts? That's interesting because... Um Depending on who you talk to and their level of expertise and focus, um, you say, how fast is my site and how do I make it faster? You get one of two responses. You either get 
let's go and tinker with the database, or you get, let's go and look at the JavaScript. And often the reality is much more complicated and overlapping than it just being back-end or front-end. Um, and obviously, all the different parts of your stack might affect both of those areas. You might have a plugin that does a whole bunch of heavy lifting in your page loading process that also spits out a whole bunch of clunky JavaScript. And in fact, that's the case for many of the larger plugins that deal with things like um, changing how templates render or adding functionality, things like, um, and all of which is the big um, banner plugin, um, Revolution Slider and all its derivatives. Yeah, huge amount of backend heavyweight and huge amount of front-end impact. Um, so again, it's the same kind of answer, which is that you need to assess that whole stack. It might be that you can paper over some cracks by just getting faster hosting and throwing more firepower at heavy systems in the back end. In fact, if you're running a whole bunch of security programs and software and plugins, that might come with a performance overhead that you then need to compensate by um, throwing more firepower at your hosting, by looking at some of the network configuration. Again, spending a bit more money can help things like... Um, People often overlook the impact of the physical hardware or the virtual hardware running your hosting and service. But again, that's because that's really the kind of thing you shouldn't have to think about in this space. You just want to pay the person to make that go away. And then the rest of it essentially comes down to your site config. Yes, there's stuff you can do to optimize database structure and performance, but really that should be hosting and plugin territory. The stuff that you can control is um, what processes and systems and functionality am I using? and testing those. So turn them off and on one at a time, run the testing tools, see where the overhead, head overhead is on the back-end loading speed and the front-end, what, what JavaScript is spitting out, what CSS is spitting out, and evaluate them and come up with like a business cost trade-off. Is it worth the functionality for the extra second and a half it takes for this to load um, and try and make those decisions? I think that's such an important point because there's an obsession with page speed, and it is important. We know it is important, but it... I guess for commerce sites, it can have more of an impact commercially. But for content, I've had this on my own site. I don't need it to be everything sub one second. It doesn't have a material impact on people looking at my site. And therefore, the cost and effort to get it to that from where it is about, you know, on some site pages, 1.7 seconds, it doesn't make sense. It just doesn't. Um, so, yeah, so, so good advice. So um, question I've got. What's what's changed, do you think? So you're a full-stack developer. What's changed in the last 12 to 24 months that has helped development teams make WordPress sites perform better and be more reliable? You know, there's lots of stuff that goes around the industry, things like HTTP2. From your position inside it, what's had meaningful impacts? I think the biggest thing has been Google's push on Core Web Vitals as the definitive standard for measuring how fast a thing is and breaking that down into smaller pieces. I think them shining this spotlight on, um, on it, as it as a problem area and also incentivizing people to get faster has really catalyzed the whole space, not least of which um, Google's own documentation around this sort of stuff is phenomenal. Um, there are two sites there, like web.dev and the PageSpeed Insights Web Fundamentals documentation. There are reams and reams and reams of pages that they've invested a fortune in time and resource in curating, creating, and managing, where they've really um, they've defined what best practice looks like in a way that didn't exist before. They provide examples, et cetera. And suddenly, everyone now has an incentive to care and the resources to fix it, and they've jumped on it. So out of that, we've seen born, for example, um, WordPress now has lazy loading by default, which doesn't sound like a huge deal, but it's pretty cool. And actually behind the scenes on that, there's some really sophisticated thinking going on around, for example, how do I detect and estimate the layout of a page 
before it's rendered in order to determine which images should be automatically laser loaded and which ones shouldn't, which is a, a hugely complex challenge of the relationship between browsers and PHP and backends and frontends. But all that's being handled in the backend automatically. There's a whole bunch of people from Google working on that, which is pretty cool. So there's lots of these types of areas where um, the kind of base performance level is increasing. We also now have a, um, core, a performance team in WordPress core, which I'm involved in, which is really awesome. So there's a huge number of people starting to chip away at um, some of those kind of big conceptual architectural challenges around how do we speed all of this up. And then I see some incredible innovation from the plugin space. So there's a couple of staples who've been kind of dominating the performance space for a while. People like um, WP Rocket do a really good job. Um, W3 Total Cash do a great job. There's some interesting new players, um, two that I'd like to call out. One is Nitro Pack, who have an interestingly mixed reputation. There was a whole bunch of kind of pushback when they launched because it seemed too good to be true. Um, I've played with it. It is that good. It's um, a slightly different pricing model than usual. It's like a cost per page because they have a whole remote caching thing. But they do some really smart stuff with um, deferring all of your JavaScript until the user interacts with the page. So the, the whole page loads and then just stops and waits until you like move your mouse before they start triggering analytics and um, ads and consent stuff, which is awesome. And then um, I guess the other big thing that's happened and changed and evolved is AMP as a standard, which is also somewhat contentious. But um, I think AMP plus WordPress is a really interesting recipe. Uh, I run the AMP plugin on my website, johnawaldson.com, which is like built and maintained by a whole bunch of Googlers. And it is faster than I could make it if I spent two or three weeks with nothing else to do really obsessing about it. And I know because I've looked and I've tried and I've tinkered with it and I cannot keep up with how fast they innovate and how fast they roll out cutting edge standards. Like I check the source code on my site occasionally and there are bits of CSS techniques that I don't recognize because they are so like, this This won't land in Chrome mainstream until next year. And they're dabbling and they're tinkering and they're right on the cutting edge. And this is all happening for free for me quietly while I sleep. So there's a whole bunch of movement happening that behind the scenes, which is just making all of these things faster. It's really exciting. Right. Um, yeah, I agree. The core web vitals update has had a really positive impact on platform level uh, performance stuff, like Shopify, that 18 months. Oh, yeah started making a lot of big improvements to um, their kind of um, liquid framework and WebP images and all of that kind of stuff, which is great. Um, so in terms of core web vitals for WordPress sites, so what kind of things cause things like first input delay um, to go red? Um, what bumps up largest contemporary paint? Um, what are some of the causes for like kind of fragmented um, rendering experiences? Like what are some of the things you recommend when it comes to optimizing for core web vitals? So there's so many moving parts here, but there are some interesting things you can do. Um, all, all of these types of issues tend to be caused by a combination of themes and plugins outputting lots, either lots of or heavy JavaScript and CSS. Um, so your big homepage slider loads five different pieces of JavaScript, relies on jQuery, which means it can't load until the rest of the pages, dumps out a whole bunch of CSS that it may or may not use, and the whole thing is really inefficient. What's interesting is that if they most of those plugins, if they're coded to WordPress standards, you can go in and you can actually unpick that behavior. So you can hire a reasonably competent developer or maybe take a go yourself. If you can find out what those scripts and style sheets are called in the back end, you can say, actually, remove this one, change the order of these two, load the CSS before the JavaScript, because we know that that will remove some of the blocking behavior, and you can start to unpick these. 
Um, you can very quickly see where these kinds of problems are if you use something like web page test or look in Google Chrome's developer console at the Lighthouse network report. You can see either big JavaScript files pretty quickly, or you can see where the waterfall gets blocked by other resources. And if you can get as far as to identify where those bottlenecks are, it's actually quite often fairly trivial to get a developer to unpick those to say, look, it's fairly obvious that nothing can happen with this, these things until this CSS is loaded. Can we change the order that that happens in? And then they can do things like defer it, move it to the footer, move it to the header, change some syntax, um, and you can unpick a lot of that. So even if you're running a whole bunch of plugins and these are quite heavy, the order that these things load in and the dependencies is quite often the easiest win if you're not willing to compromise on that functionality and so forth. Um, the other thing, which is an absolute killer for so many WordPress sites, is fonts. Um, custom fonts are a nightmare. Google fonts is a nightmare. Um, like, so you want a custom font, you go to Google fonts, you copy paste the CSS they give you. That is a external request to a third party domain that triggers other external requests to other third party domains that pulls back a whole bunch of CSS that you probably haven't needed or optimized or used properly. Yeah, 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 yeah. It takes two seconds, your screen flashes, everything moves because the fonts are slightly different size. It's horrible. Um, in the short term, there are techniques that you can use to host those fonts yourself and make it much faster. There is a plugin called WTF fonts, I think, or something like that, um, worth Googling for, that automatically optimizes all of that. In the longer term, um, I'm part of a campaign at the moment to try and get a fonts API into WordPress core. So in the same way that you can enqueue a style sheet or a bit of JavaScript, you'll be able to enqueue a font, which, hey, sounds sensible. Um, and that will abstract all of that away, and it will all be super nice and fast and excellent. So hopefully all of this will, will go away gradually. I see like the big sliders and the big heavy JavaScript stuff is starting to fix as well. There's some pushes to move away from jQuery as a dependency. Um, things like Elementor are getting faster. They're caring more about the DOM structure, again, because Google is saying, hey, get your core web vitals right. That's putting a lot of pressure on for these legacy, clunky, bloated things to start to improve. So hopefully you don't have to do anything and it will just magically get better over time. Great. And then um, so you've mentioned AMP a few times, and James, I think you mentioned it once as well. Um, where does AMP fit in for an e-commerce brand and what kind of impact have you seen? And then also in terms of like kind of richer kind of brand sites that are maybe like geared towards creating like a really engaging kind of brand experience, but is there still a role for AMP for those types of sites? Uh, yeah, definitely. I um, I know AMP has had some political challenges. I know um, when it launched, Google did a phenomenally good, uh, but good, phenomenally bad job of naming it and marketing it and managing it and executing it and governing it and uh, doing anything with it. Like it, it was not great when it launched. Um, and I know the the web performance industry and the SEO industry essentially poo pooed it quite um, uh, universally. Um, a lot's changed since then. So I'm part of the AMP um, uh, advisory committee. So I um, I get eyes on what's happening and the roadmap. And part of my responsibility there is to try and influence the technical side, including people from Google to say, okay, build X and not Y or change direction or rebrand or whatever. Um, there's some really interesting stuff has happened and is happening, uh, a few of which... Um, the legacy approach to having to build and maintain a separate template is no longer the case. That was understandably a nightmare for many site owners. You don't want to have to have an AMP version and a normal version. Now AMP is much more like a JavaScript framework, like React, 
like a Gatsby that you just build with. Um, and it's inherently faster because of some of the constraints and optimization stuff it comes with. Um, you can also now opt out of the AMP, opt out of Google's AMP cache. I know that was a big challenge for e-commerce sites that um, they cache your site very heavily. Uh, great for performance, but if my product goes out of stock or something changes, then I'm sending a really confusing experience to my users, and it was a nightmare to manage that. You can now just opt out, which is really cool. Um, and actually, there are some cases still where um, AMP content can be slower than if you did it yourself. Um, and the big bottleneck there is you still have to load the AMP library from Google CDN. Uh, so it's like a third-party external JavaScript request before anything else happens. That's changing. Um, you'll soon be able to self-host those libraries. Um, that puts us in a really interesting position where everything that we used to know about AMP is no longer true. And what we have is the world's fastest component library. And actually, if you go to uh, bentojs.dev, you can see what the next um, generation of that looks like. So this is where AMP is going. This is about AMP as a series of components that you can just plug and play. So today's world is you say, oh, I want a carousel on my page, and you roll the dice and hope that you get a developer who doesn't implement one in a way that nukes your site and sets your users' mobile phones on fire from data consumption and graphics cards overheating just to get the swipey bit right. All of that goes away. You just have a component that you plug and play and it manages performance for you. I think that's really cool. Um, it's still not quite there completely for e-commerce. Um, you can do um, the full flow in AMP in e-com. You can do checkouts, you can do coupons, you can do modals, you can do custom JavaScript, you can do many of the things you would want to do. You can do A-B testing. It is harder to do that than it would be to do a conventional, I'm going to build a site. Um, there is a barrier to entry. There is a learning curve. Um, but once you've got over that, God, is it fast. And it's so easy to keep it fast and keep it performant and secure in a way that um, you would never do with another approach because there is no technical debt. And the thing improves itself over time. Like you can just take your hands off the wheel and you've got a site that's done, which is really interesting. Like that's increasingly my relationship with my website, which, yes, is just a tiny brochure thing, but it's perfect. Like it is, it is undeniably perfect and continues to be like it gets better over time. Nothing ever breaks. It's as fast as it, literally as fast as it can possibly be, short of bending the laws of physics to alter how the speed of light works. There is nothing more I can do with it. And much of that is just handled by AMP and the AMP plugin and the people behind it. It's pretty awesome. Uh, like one of the, the criticisms that came from the e-commerce and I guess the marketing community was was its incompatibility with with um, uh, like digital marketing platforms, advertising networks, etc. Um, I've been out of the loop on this. I haven't really kept an eye on it. Is that still an issue? Is it is there still a problem with advertising on AMP pages for commerce? A little. Um, yes, yeah, so there was a few bits. The initial integration with Google Analytics was a nightmare. You had to um, do all sorts of weird stuff with a separate profile, which broke all of your attribution, which is not what you want. They fixed some of that. <coughs> um, there is still no integration with GA4, though that's coming soon. Um, I'm just going to cough. You got emotional that about the I did. Yeah, well, understandably so. I just wish it was a proper product and ready for general use, but we'll get there. Um, so that's fixed to a degree. Um, you still can't really do much with aggressive header bidding or with um, aggressive and slow ads, which, hey, people run entire businesses and industries on. That's a staple of the web. There's a little bit of a carrot and stick thing going on that I think people at Google are hoping that if they say they shout loudly enough about slow ads, then maybe ads get faster. There has been some impact on that. Um, one of the things they have done is um, there is a subset of AMP called AMP for Ads, 
which is essentially what if we applied the same performance constraints of AMP to adverts and display units and A-B testing, et cetera. Um, that's got some traction. I know it's widely supported by some of the big DPXs, um, Google, uh, AdSense, and some others. Um, hopefully, that will continue to grow and will make all the ad networks and the ads they serve faster because nobody needs a 20-meg GIF loading in a sidebar whilst you're trying to, um, trying to get your shopping in. So hopefully, that's a solved problem as well, at least gradually. Excellent, thanks. Um, just coming back onto the, the speed thing. So you, you talked earlier about some of the common issues people have on WordPress sites when they haven't optimised or maintained like plugins and hosting. I'd love to talk about CDNs because CDN seems to be for many, it's it's a, it's an, a go onto a CDN, it will fix all your problems, but CDNs aren't born equal. You need configuration. You have to understand what the CDN does, how it, how it sits on top of your hosting, where files sit, what, et cetera, et cetera. There's lots of different elements to it that turn a CDN from being effective to potentially not doing anything or harming you. So <laughs> yes. I'd love to hear your perspective. Um, what are the common issues of CDNs and what do people need to think about when working on WordPress to make sure they're doing it in the right way? I think there's an education gap here. Historically, CDNs have been very technical and very complicated. And yeah, one slight misclick and actually you slow everything down because you're doing crazy things. Um, I think the space has changed, and I think that Cloudflare have won the internet. Like, if I had to bet on one company, other than maybe Google, um, to change the world in profound, enormous, and, and magical ways, it would be Cloudflare. I think they've done two big things. One is they've removed all of that complexity. As a CDN, you plug it in, you switch it on, and magic happens. But the other is they've moved where the CDN lives. This is no longer a highly technical, complex thing that sits deep in your tech stack somewhere. It's a layer that sits at the front, and it solves all of performance and it solves. It handles all of performance, all of security, and a whole bunch of other stuff. And I think there's, there's still a huge amount of perceptions that a CDN is somewhere where I host my images and my files, and it somehow integrates with great complexity into my file system and my storage. None of that is really the case anymore. This is a on-the-fly performance system that operates out of the city nearest to where your user requests your site from. Um, there is an interesting point that you hinted at, which is shifting the responsibility for performance from the application, whether it's WordPress or whatever your site's running on, to the edge, to your CDN, to Cloudflare, is an interesting choice. Like If Cloudflare automatically makes all of my images small and performant, is it a problem if I'm uploading five megabyte images to my CMS? I guess, and this is a question there isn't really an answer to, it is a question of choice and management and governance and architecture, because increasingly we see, in, for example, in the SEO space, people fixing things on their websites using the edge. So I will use Cloudflare to make arbitrary changes to my HTML, to my meta robots tags, to my robots text, to my XML sitemaps on the fly in Cloudflare in a way that's not reflected on us on, on, on their sites. If they leave, if they quit, if they die, if Cloudflare goes bankrupt, if something breaks, if you need to turn it off briefly, bits of your website logic are now in different places. Now, I don't think that's intrinsically bad. And in fact, I think there is a, an, there is a potentially utopian version of the web where increasingly more stuff is distributed, but you need to have a plan for how that works. You don't want your website logic stri um, dribbled across all these different ecosystems. So I think 
it makes sense to try and avoid relying on these systems for architectural fixes, but it's definitely a good play to use them for kind of on-the-fly optimizations. A sub-question relates to that, because security, you, you touched on, but it's critical here, uh, especially with, with you know, WordPress being so massive and therefore prone to people trying to attack it to get into multiple sites. What are the, what are the key uh, things people have to think about if they're having a WordPress site and they're using Cloudflare? What do they need to think about in terms of uh, uh, security provisions, um, firewall set? Because traditionally, people do it and they're hosting. So I, I use GoDaddy. I'm used to setting up my hosting there. I, I can pay for a file or I can be lackstaysical and go, I'll be all right. But it's all done there. Then I move to Cloudflare. What do I need to think about as a web owner? Um, I would go in and explore. This is a, whilst the basic settings are really surface level, like tick this box to minify your JavaScript, you can go really deep into some of the advanced stuff. Um, there's a whole bunch of features that very few people use. For example, um, out of the box, um, it's not quite out of the box. I think there's like a maybe a $5 a month or something, but you can um, put um, some of their explicit logic for login um, defense in. So you can point it at your login page and it will add so they've got a thing somewhere where you can go and review all of their rules and logic, search for the word cloud, um, word WordPress. Some of them are turned on by default, but some of them are turned off. And you can generally get a feel for what they do. You can go, oh, actually, um, I don't need, I'm, I don't expect anybody ever needing to remotely publish to my site from a third party. Therefore, I can enable these rules that turn off these routes. And you can do it feature by feature and go through and do some of that. Um, so that's really powerful. Also, yeah, set up some of the basic firewall rules. Um, don't allow people to um, hit your site a million times per minute um, or brute force their way in and around. So, sorry, not the basic. The, the more advanced settings are worth going in and looking at. Um, so can you talk us through a few case studies of yours from where you've kind of gone through and optimised some of the things you've talked about Um on WordPress sites, and that could be your own sites or kind of clients of yours, um, et cetera. Sure. So part, a somewhat unofficial part of my job is to kind of keep an eye on the performance on Yoast.com, because if we're talking about how important this is, not least of which from an SEO perspective, we ought to do some dog fooding and take our own medicine, et cetera. So um, we've been on quite a long journey now for maybe, maybe two years or so of gradually chipping away at Yoast.com. It's quite a legacy site quite a complex site. It's e-commerce. We've got multiple currencies, multiple products, bundles, checkouts, all sorts, and a whole SaaS thing that's bolted on where you can log in and do stuff. Makes it quite a complicated ecosystem. Um, we've done a whole bunch of stuff gradually. Like um, We are almost at the very end of quite a long process to completely remove our reliance on jQuery, which is quite nice. Like That's a bit legacy now. It's a bit heavy. None of the other JavaScript that relies on it can run until it's loaded. So you've got to wait for the page to load and then it fires, which is terrible when you consider core vitals. Like I want all of this happening before the user has to sit and watch it load. Um, I think we're still um, tied to that because our internal site search does some suggestive stuff. Um, so we're gradually ripping that out. Um, we're gradually unbundling all of our JavaScript and CSS. So a lot of it is still bundled, but it's better than it was. We... Um, because historically, before HTTP2, it made much more sense to send one big lump of JavaScript and then have the browser deal with it. Um, that's how it used to work. And now in a world of HTTP2, it makes sense to send maybe five or six smaller pieces and really to microscopically optimize, only send the stuff that's needed for this page to load. 
Um, and then to try and balance that with, okay, actually, maybe we ought to send stuff that's shared elsewhere because we want to cache it so that when they visit another page that's already loaded and available in the browser. That trade-off is quite interesting, and it's one we're juggling with, and we've got a roadmap to do. Like, okay, we should always load the CSS for the header on all pages, but some interesting decisions. Um, that's been quite an interesting process. We've shaved off quite a lot of time by removing stuff that's not needed for pages that it's not needed on, and then also splintering stuff into smaller files. The biggest win we had was um, quite a sophisticated Cloudflare setup to statically cache all the pages on the site. So unless you specifically configure it to, Cloudflare doesn't cache pages, which many people feel is a bit counterintuitive. Um, it caches JavaScript and CSS and fonts and images and PNGs. It doesn't cache your actual pages. And quite often, it's your pages that are the slowest thing. Like if I've got my server's got to web up and do a whole bunch of processing and check what's in stock and look at where the user is and run a whole bunch of plugins, that might take a second and a half. So not on the best hosting in the world, but it might theoretically take a second or so. If I've got static page caching in place and I can just serve that from Cloudflow, it takes 70 milliseconds. And quite often, that's like the biggest single gain that a site might get is moving from dynamic sites to uh, a statically cached site. Um, we had some interesting challenges configuring that on Yoast.com because our product pricing and some other bits vary based on where you are in the world. If you're in the UK, you get pounds. If you're in Europe, you get euros. In the US, you get dollars and some logic across those. So we've got a custom caching setup that takes that into account and routes you to a different version of the page. Uh, this, I'm harking back to the CDNs play for a minute, this is where Cloudflare and other CDNs, the less so, become really powerful because this is essentially arbitrary logic and custom business logic that runs right on the edge where the user is, not where our server is hosted, so that it's essentially instantaneous and we can make snap decisions about how should we change this page, where should we send this user, and then give them a cached version of that so yeah, bits of Yoast.com are running in Manchester and in London and in Glasgow and in Dublin to make sure that the right people get to the right cached versions of the page. And that now happens in 100 milliseconds rather than a second. So that's pretty awesome. I do. Um, I run another site called daysoftheyear.com. It does something similar. That does it based on your estimated time zone, based on your location, which I'm really proud of. There's about 100 lines of JavaScript that runs in Cloudflare that looks up which country are you from generate the right version, right routing to the right version of the page based on your time zone offset and serve it from the cache. And yet 60 milliseconds rather than the second and a half that would take to process. So that's really awesome. I really see this as the kind of next level of performance optimization that those tricky bits of business logic need to run right on the edge where they can be cached. Um, other stuff, yeah, loads of font optimization. I spent too long working on my own site. I do have some client stuff that I can't really talk about. Um, but yeah, my site is... Um, uh, the kind of some of my efforts of really how far can I squeeze this? Like really granular attention to font rendering in particular, changing things like um, font display settings in CSS. Is it faster to do font display swap and preload or font display fallback and not preload? And should I preload the 500 weight and the 700 weight or just the 700 weight? And what are the trade-offs? Um, so I tinker with those, I change it, I run Chrome, I run Lighthouse, I run the Chrome developer reports, look at those waterfall charts and go, okay, actually, this, this loads faster once the resources are in, but the initial timing is slower or vice versa. Um, so it's chipping away at that piece by piece. There are some interesting new standards I'm playing with there, actually. Cloudflare launched um, support for early hints recently. So if you now send um, send the server information 
about, sorry, send the browser information about what JavaScript or CSS or fonts you're going to need to load with the initial response. It can start loading those before the page is rendering. And there's a whole bunch of documentation in Cloudflare that's worth going and looking into. That is really powerful. It's a little bit beta-ish, but um, that's the next big win for many sites is um, not waiting for the page to start loading before you say, could you go get that JavaScript? It's pretty cool. Great. And um, and I guess you've talked about so many different things there. And it, so far, like, um, earlier on in the episode, you talked about using kind of some of the um, developer tools and, and, and some of the kind of resources available in Inspect or in a browser um, and the core web vitals as like a measurement protocol, essentially. Um, what else would you be using if you were looking to diagnose why a site is slow or why they've got specific core web vitals issues? What other tools and resources would you be looking to use? I really try and go light on the tools. I find that I, I try and solidly rely on a combination of um, Lighthouse, which gives you your core web vitals and other bits as a, like, uh, a way of measuring. But then for diagnosis, I stick purely with um, the Chrome Developer Console, um, with the odd exception for something like web page tests, which will allow me to more easily test from other locations than I can be bothered to do with a VPN. But what I really want to understand, I don't want a nice reporting tool that gives me summaries of you've got big images. I want to see how the page is loading. I want to understand that this image loads before this piece of JavaScript that triggers this piece of CSS to load. And ah, okay, that is the bit that's bottlenecking all the stuff that happens after that. I think um, as soon as you start using pretty tools with nice user interfaces, you start getting very generic recommendations. And when you really want to make the difference between loading in two seconds and one page, the places where you're going to find that are going to be quite nuanced and quite specific to your site. And where you see those and identify them is in those waterfall charts, specifically which element after element after element, in what order, with what weights, with what preconditions, how long does it take to connect, how long does it take to render when it's done. That's where the gems are. And it's all my time is spent in those waterfall reports. Yeah, I have to say, even as a non-technical uh, e-commerce person, I love them to, to help provoke discussions because there's no denying that a, a visual massive delay in a process where you suddenly see that that line is taking way, way longer than it should do, even though it's not a huge resource. There's clearly something uh, it can often uh, make people get a bit more excited about taking it seriously. Uh, cool. So I've got, just want to uh, flip back specifically to, to WordPress and where it's going now. Is, yeah. As we said before, such a massive platform. Lots of people use it for commerce. People use it for content. Where is it going? What What are the key changes you've seen in the last twelve months? And what do you think people can expect going into twenty twenty two from the platform? That's an interesting question and a slightly contentious one um, because you're going to get different answers based on who you ask. There, the big thing, which is definitely coming coming soon, TM, is full site editing. Um, Oh, which, which is an interesting challenge. So one of WordPress's potential weaknesses is that um, if you want to edit and manage and tweak your theme, you either need a series, a, a team of competent developers and resource, or something like an Elementor or a Divi or a Beaver Builder, one of those um, theme builder, site building tools. And those almost universally come with enormous performance trade-offs. If you're using Elementor to drag and drop and design your pages, chances are that's outputting a lot of JavaScript and CSS and HTML that's slowing things down. And that's that's not their fault. It's an unavoidable trade-off that flexibility comes with performance overheads and it's hard to manage that. 
In theory, full site editing brings a flavor of that kind of site building into WordPress core. And we move away gradually from a world where we have themes and templates to where we have just blocks in the same way that the block editor has replaced the classic editor and you now your content is composed of blocks, except not in WooCommerce because they're slow to get there, but you know the deal. That becomes the way we interact with and manage our whole sites. That's quite exciting. That could be a huge deal for, for performance and for content editing and a whole bunch of other reasons. The challenge is nobody's quite sure what this is or how it will work yet, despite it being having been due to launch last month. And there's a huge amount of politics and contention around it. But as and when it gets there, I think that will be the next big paradigm in the same way that the big the move from classic editor to blocks was a big deal. This would be the, the end of that journey or the next big step at least. So that's a big deal. Um, the other thing that's happening I mentioned already is the, the kind of birth of the performance team, which um, is really putting um, foot down on the accelerator to solve some of WordPress's long-term performance issues where... As Paul, as you mentioned, um, the Shopify's, the Wixes of the world have spent the last 18 months doubling, tripling their baseline speed. And well done, really impressive. That's easier for them than it is for WordPress because they're controlled environments and they don't have 50,000 plugins and 20,000 themes and however many combinations of bad hosting and setup and bits of JavaScript, et cetera. It's much harder for WordPress to speed up the baseline because there's so many versions. Um, so... Some of the core architectural stuff we're working on at the moment, some real improvements to diagnosis and measurement. So like bits of Lighthouse and similar tools baked into your site um, natively, which would be really cool. So we can start to look at where are the problems. And then a huge amount of work around things like um, automatic improvement of JavaScript, better object caching in the back end. Uh, we've just launched support for WebP images. There'll be more of that coming soon. We're actually looking at the logistics of, for example, how might WordPress automatically convert everybody's images from PNG to WebP automatically in the background, which is the more you look at it, the more kind of terrifying a challenge because, okay, you've got a big site with that's 10 years of history and has 30 gigabytes of WebP uh, PNG images. Where do you even start without taking the hosting down? So there's huge challenges of distribution around that. But the theme is there is a huge amount of work and attention going on to how do we make your site faster for you, which is pretty exciting. Um, and then, yeah, whatever full site editing brings will come with a whole bunch of new toys, um, which will couple in with other things like, um, I know we're looking at a whole bunch of that from a structured data perspective as well as speed. Um, and there's all sorts of stuff coming there. Excellent. That's wonderful. That's, that's a really nice insight and overview. Um, one final question to finish with. It's, uh, this is the question I love to ask people. So you're, you're an e I know you run um, uh, your own websites, but say you're, you're a pure e-commerce brand you don't have legacy limitations and you're building a stack um, where WordPress is, is the, the core content um, CMS. What, what is your stack? What does your back end look like? You know, what e-commerce platform would you use alongside WordPress? What front end do you use? You know, go wild. What would it be? I love this question. I spent a lot of time thinking about it. This was, in fact, I spoke at um, Turing Fest in Edinburgh a couple of weeks ago, and this was my talk. My, my talk was essentially, Amazing. why are you not already on WordPress doing this? So um, I have to be slightly diplomatic. Um, I I would, when it comes to, so the, one of the first parts of that question you want to answer is hosting, is where does this live? 
Um, Yoast was recently acquired by a big hosting conglomerate, Newfold Digital, who are great, who run Bluehost and Web.com and a bunch of others. So um, I would say go and do some research and find um, a hosting company that best fits your needs. However, um, I will recommend one of their brands because I'll get fired if I don't. But if you have lots of money to spend and no legacy, I would also, as a competitor, um, check out Servebolt. Um, if you're looking for pure speed, um, they are the hosting company that has impressed me the most in that regard. Um, just raw performance, they are phenomenal. Um, and certainly they're kind of shaping the space around that. Um, they win all of the, the tests and reports and stuff. Um, but do your own shopping, do your own research. Um, then, yeah, on top of that or underneath it, depending on how you look at it, Cloudflare, um, not just as a performance tweaking thing, but increasingly as part of the architecture and logic, using their edge workers to do a flavor of fragment caching. So anywhere where only one small part of the page or experience needs to be customized to the user, do that customization where the user is, not in the center. I know um, there's an interesting trend at the moment for things like headless sites and static sites. I think both of those are potentially a little bit of a fad and a distraction because um, what they achieve, um, you can achieve doing stuff with edge workers without any of the drawbacks that those types of approaches conventionally come with. Like um, I have a JavaScript monstrosity or um, I can't actually edit any of my content without spending two days of dev resource. This is the nice middle ground using edge workers to do that kind of fragment stuff. Um, I would want to lean heavily on one of the big WordPress performance plugins. If I'm looking e-commerce, I'd probably look at W3 Total Cache rather than WP Rocket. Um, they're both tend to be comparable in terms of features. WP Rocket feels nicer and cleaner, but W3 Total Cache has so many dials and bells and whistles and tweaks that if I've got a slightly complex e-commerce site set up, I might want to be excluding certain cookie groups or user agent combinations or certain paths in certain conditions, and they're better suited to that kind of granular tweaking. Um, I would want to handcraft a theme. I don't want anything off the shelf. I want to sit down with a blank slate and I want to handwrite HTML, I want to handwrite CSS, and I want to handwrite JavaScript. I don't want to rely on jQuery if I can avoid it. I don't want to rely on something like Tailwind if I can avoid it. I want to handcraft every line of that because I know that everything that's in there that I don't need is a potential performance cost. Um, CSS less so because increasingly browsers are getting good at only passing stuff they need. But even then, like every kilobyte in those matters, I want to micromanage which pages load which resources, which order the, do they do it in, what are the dependencies. This is stuff that I've spent a long lot of time doing on my own sites and on daysofvio.com. And there's a real attention to um, do I need this CSS? Should this be one file or two? Uh, should it load in line? Should it load in the header or the footer? Really that level of attention of detail, which you can do with the theme off the shelf and you can tweak with plugins, but then suddenly you're in a place where I've got three different plugins in that are designed to help me micromanage my CSS, but they do that at the cost of backend performance. And you're, like, you're just moving where the bottleneck is at that point. Um, I would want to use Yoast SEO for SEO reasons um, and the fact that they're my gainful employer. But also, um, we have a thing we built, which um, uh, we have a, a dedicated database table which stores all of your SEO data, all of your metadata, your canonical tags, et cetera, which actually means when you're running that and requesting all of that header information, it's faster than it would be with native WordPress. So in quite a lot of cases for big, complex sites, Yoast SEO will speed up your site rather than slowing it down, which is nice. Um, and then the e-commerce component is interesting. I think WooCommerce gets a bad rep 
for many of the same reasons that WordPress gets a bad rep. There is a huge plugin and extension marketplace. It is inherently a bit clunky. doesn't mean it's inherently bad. I have seen some very complex, very sophisticated, very large e-commerce sites running very happily on a combination of WooCommerce, a whole bunch of carefully managed and curated extensions, and a lot of fine-tuning and customization. Like at that point, you're going to want a developer to be going in and tweaking some of the theme integration logic and managing how it behaves and making sure that the cart doesn't fall over all the time. Um, if you really have outgrown that, which fair enough, some people do just in terms of scale, one of the few things WordPress isn't good at is that kind of horizontal scaling of I've now got a million SKUs. Okay, good luck having your site ever load, never mind it load quickly. Um, big commerce is an interesting play. Um, two reasons. One is you offload all of that into the into the cloud, um, but then you compare that into Cloudflare in a way that's quite nice, so all of it's cached and localized. Um, and they also have quite a nice Yoast integration, so all your schema hooks up and it all happens automatically. Very, very fancy. Um, and that just ties in nicely. Um, and then, yeah, I would want to get all that set up and then start looking at what of that can I unpick and push into Cloudflare's edge so that it's not running on my servers. Amazing. A very detailed answer, and I expected no less. In, interesting that the the shout out was for big commerce. I, I have a I have a definite soft spot in the SaaS platforms for big commerce myself for for several business reasons. And Paul Paul loves Shopify, so we always laugh at each other's uh, each other's biases. Nice. And Shopify have done some incredible stuff recently. Yes. They're a real contender, and they are on a great trajectory. Their new um, what's the successor to Liquid? Is it Hydrogen? The Hydrogen, yeah. Really interesting. But I think they're setting up for a win. Yeah, exactly. And this, this hearing lies the pros and cons of platform. No, none are hundred percent perfect, and, <laughs> and uh, often it's just I like this one better. Um, yep. that, that really love talking to you. I always do. Always learn new things when I listen to you. So, look, thanks ever so much for for coming on the podcast and sharing your knowledge and insight on the WordPress community and, and platform today. No, thanks for the invite. This was an absolute treat. What a delight. Uh, amazing and yeah it's you know if it's a treat to have to sit and talk to me and pull for the day you're easily <laughs> pleased as always mate <laughs> <laughs> that's all it takes yeah exactly and and everyone who's tuned in today thanks for listening keeping your open for our next episodes they land every tuesday and let us know of any topics or guests you'd love us to, to to feature on it um please subscribe if you haven't already and do leave us a rating we'd love to know whether whether you like us or not be as honest as you can thanks very much until next time (laughs) bye for more information on this topic head over to replatform.fm for our audio podcasts to discuss a project or if you'd like to chat about any of the topics covered in this episode in more detail please reach out to myself James Gerd or my co-host Paul Rogers via LinkedIn and Twitter Thanks again for listening and keep your ears peeled for the next episode.